Thanks so much, Trevor. Um, and good morning, everybody. Wonderful to see you all. Um, up the back and up the front, there is a transcript, a full transcript of the sermon, if you'd find that helpful and, a, and an aid to listening. And there's also an outline there if taking notes helps you kind of concentrate and think through things and note down things that you want to act on later. Well, the dreams of our brother dear are the decade's biggest yawn. His talk of stars and golden sheaves is just a load of corn. Not only is he tactless, but he's also rather dim, for there's 11 of us and there's only one of him. The dreams, of course, will not come true. That is, we think they won't come true. That is, we hope they won't come true. What if he's right all along? The dreams are more than crystal clear. The writing on the wall means that Joseph someday soon will rise above us all. The accuracy of the dreams we brothers do not know, but one thing we are sure about the dreamer has to go. Now, that's lyricist Tim Wright's paraphrase of the passage that Trevor just read for us. Um, it's fairly a loose interpretation, I think we might call it that. But if you think about it, there are not many real-life stories that are so vivid that they get retold in a blockbuster Broadway musical. But the one that we're about to begin certainly is. We've come to the beginning of the final great narrative of the book of Genesis. A narrative so full that one commentator said it pretty much is the closest you're likely to find in the Bible to an actual novel in terms of the way the whole thing is put together. Today we get to see the giving and the tearing apart of the famous Technicolor Dreamcoat. But let me tell you, it's not such a sing-song beginning. In fact, it's full of ugly and dark discords, the hateful tunes of the sinful human heart. But hidden away in the midst of all this evil cacophony is something that's really quite remarkable, a quiet theme, a beautiful melody, undetected, sadly, by Andrew Lloyd Webber, so faint that you can hardly hear it, but it's going to build over the rest of the book of Genesis. And then it's going to keep building as the Old Testament goes ahead until finally in the gospel, it's going to become a resounding symphony that will overwhelm all other tunes. But it begins today. Well, after that slightly grandiose introduction, confession, um, th there is one correction, other, other correction that we need to make about the Broadway version of this story. Joseph might be the main character, but it is not the story of an individual, but of a family. Let's have a look at the beginning of chapter 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. So let's catch up a little bit. After two decades away up in Paddan Aram, Jacob has now come home. Now, we're going to cover some of the chapters in between last week's message and today's message um, in, the, in this week's podcast on Monday. But we left last week, you might remember, with Jacob and Esau reconciling of sorts. Well, between then and now, a few key things happen that you need to be brought up to speed on. The Lord has kept his promise. And so, in chapter 35, Jacob is reminded to honour the promise that he made to the Lord back at Bethel, when he had the dream of the ladder, when he says, if you actually do all of this, God, then you'll be my God. Well, God's calling him on it, and Jacob honours it. 
The Lord now is the God of Jacob exclusively. And he calls on his whole family to rid themselves of all their foreign gods. They were carrying them around with them. Get rid of all of their idols and to purify themselves. And then they returned to Bethel and they built an altar and sacrificed to the Lord there. And sometime later after that, Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, um, dies. And she dies giving birth to a son, Benjamin. And then Isaac, he eventually dies too. And so the story of Isaac's family comes to a close and the story of Jacob's family now begins. And so chapter 7 begins with one of those very important marker phrases in the book of Genesis. Look at the beginning of verse 2 there. This is the account of Jacob's family line. And the story of Jacob's family commences with us being introduced to his second youngest son, the son of Jacob's beloved late wife, Rachel. And we're going to learn three things about Joseph, or at least we're going to learn three things about what his brothers thought of him. And first, in verse 2, we're going to meet Joseph the Dobber. Joseph the Dobber, look at that. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. So if you're thinking about trying to visualise Joseph, he's, he's basically a year 12 boy, right? That's where he's up to. Now the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, which you might sort of be just going, oh, blah, 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 but whatever. Well, they're Dan, Naphtali, Gad and Asher. But their names are not the really important thing. And that's not what the writer of Genesis is bringing out for us. It's where they stood in the family line, in the family pecking order. They were the four sons of Leah and Rachel's maidservants. And so that means they're at the bottom of the family hierarchy and they've kind of been given custody of Joseph. And Joseph, on the other hand, as we're about to find out, he is at the other end of the family hierarchy, certainly in his father's eyes. Now, we don't actually know what these boys, or well, they're men actually, these men did wrong. But Joseph felt it appropriate to tell dad about it. Now let's ask a question there. Is that a good or a bad thing? Was that, was that a sign of his integrity? You know that he wasn't willing to cover up for his brother's wrongdoing? Or is it conceitedness? He wanted to get them into trouble. Well the text gives you no hint one way or the other. And we don't even know how the other boys felt about it. But we can guess, can't we? No one likes their younger brother dobbing on them. Then we are introduced to Joseph, daddy's favourite, with his famous and highly irritating Technicolor dream coat. Look at verse 3 there. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he'd been born to him in his old age and he made an ornate robe for him. So this coat, whether it was multicoloured or not, it's not the point. It, it was a high-end coat. It was Versace or, you know, something like that, right? It was distinctive enough to mark him out from his brothers by appearance. It may as well have been a T-shirt with a slogan, Daddy loves me more than you, written on it in gold letters. 
But now notice that it was Jacob that made the robe and gave it to him. Joseph didn't ask for it. Joseph didn't get it commissioned. And yet he's the one who cops it from his brothers for wearing it. When his brothers saw their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. It's literally, could not speak a word for peace. Shalom. None of it. Not for Joseph. And the text is clear, isn't it? They hated him because their father loved him more than them. Not because Joseph was a jerk, but because he was loved. This is just pure envy. So let's just pause here and I want you to, it's always helpful to do this in in the narrative because biblical narratives are not just stories that made up to entertain us. They're not stories made up to entertain us. They're windows into the real world and real things that God did with his people. So put yourself there in that moment as it would have been 3.75 thousand years ago. Just imagine what a toxic environment that would have been for Joseph. You've got 10 other brothers, not including baby Benjamin, but every one of those 10 older brothers, grown men, hates you. They all hate you. Dad loves you, sure, but because he does, all of your brothers are so full of hate, they can't even bring themselves to say anything that might bring you peace or be a blessing to you. They can't say a thing like that to you. Every word from them, the best word they're going, he's going to get from them is neutral. You know, go look after the goat. Because we know that, you know, he had lots of goats. Um, but it would have been dripping with poison at the worst, wouldn't it? Imagine that life and it's not your fault. But you just got to live it. Well, thirdly, we get introduced to Joseph the dreamer. Verse 5, Joseph had a dream and when he told his brothers to his brothers, they hated him all the more. So why did they heap hatred upon him? Because they already hated him. And then he goes on and has a dream of bundles of wheat where all of their sheaths gather around his and bow down to it. There's a Expression, the red rag to a bull, I think this would have been pretty close to that, but 11 bulls. I mean, this really, though, should get reported to the Major Crimes Bureau, shouldn't it? Like, I mean, you had a dream about someone. You are just the worst. <laughs> I'm being sarcastic. And yet this seems to be the final straw, if you pardon the pun. Because the meaning is not hard to work out. This isn't one of those weird dreams, right? Verse 8, his brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. They hated him for dreaming it. Imagine someone hating you just for having a dream. They hated him for dreaming it and they hated him even more for telling them. But notice that. This is now the third time that we've been told how much they hate him. In the original language of both verse 5 and verse 8, we're told that they added further hate to him. Now, Joseph's name means he added. Rachel called him that 
hoping that God would add another son to her. And of course, sadly, he does, but it costs her his, her life. But it's the same word is the point. Joseph's name is a verb. And throughout this chapter and the following ones, there are puns aplenty on his name. So poor old Joseph just keeps getting stuff added to him. He keeps getting Josephed. And in this case, it's hatred that keeps getting added to him. And another pun on his name is the word told that's used to describe his relating of his dreams. It's the word Yosefer, right? So, and with each telling, with each Yosefer, more hatred, Yosef, keeps getting added. It's almost as if the writer is telling us that this is Joseph's destiny. To relate what God has shown him and to have stuff piled upon him as he does. Well, Joseph's got another dream. One where the sun, the moon and the stars bow down. But they don't bow down before another star. They actually, like the bundles of wheat, for instance, in the first dream, bow down to another bundle of wheat. They actually bow explicitly to him, to Joseph. And this time, the bowing includes his father and with Rachel dead, presumably the mother being referred to there is Leah. And when this dream gets retold... Even his father who loves him and thinks the sun shines out of him, even he's not very impressed. When he told his father as well as his brothers, verse 10, his father rebuked him and said, what's this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. So that's Joseph and that's why his brothers all hated him. But before we move on, I want to ponder that very last phrase there in that verse. It's quite interesting, isn't it? And it's quite revealing. But his father kept the matter in mind. What do you think that means? Well, the answer might help us actually with a few questions that might be buzzing through our heads. Let me say a little bit about dreams. Because this is going to be relevant for next week's talk as well as this one. If I told you a dream where it had you bowing down to me, well, if you read anything into it at all, other than going, why are you telling me your dreams? Um, You would interpret that psychologically, wouldn't you? Not prophetically, right? So what I mean by that is you might conclude that the dream is revealing of something going on in my subconscious, that I think that I'm better than you and that's why it came out in a dream, And that my retelling of that dream to let you know that I had that dream is a little bit boastful, right? Because we interpret dreams psychologically. But not all cultures view dreams as being generated purely out of our subconscious unwinding at the end of the day. They might mean nothing, sure, but throughout the world and throughout history, sometimes dreams, especially vivid ones, especially repeated ones, are viewed as having not just a psychological, but possibly having a spiritual origin. Not just dreams generated from within, but visions given to us from without, from God. And this is clearly so in many of the accounts of the Bible, and a number of times in the book of Genesis. 
So in next week's passage, both Pharaoh's cupbearer and his baker have dreams that leave them profoundly disturbed and seeking an interpretation, a meaning of it. You see see what that reveals about the way they understand dreams? And of course, what is the truth of those dreams? They actually do prove to be of divine origin. Pharaoh himself has the same experience the chapter after that and also wakes up completely disturbed and wanting to know the meaning of this because they saw more in a dream than just a psychological unravelling. And of course, Jacob himself had a dream of his own, didn't he? Back at Bethel. And he knew very well where it came from. And the events of that dream came true to the letter. So when he hears of his son being given dreams, even as offensive as the meaning appears to him, <coughs> pardon me, both he and the brothers understood that Joseph was not just saying, this is what's going on in my head, but seemed to be suggesting that he's saying that this is what God is going to bring about in the future. And that makes it more offensive for them. So the brothers, because they're prejudiced by their hatred, reject it as the boasts of a spoiled brat. Tell him he's dreaming if he thinks that's ever going to happen. But Jacob was not so quick to throw the truth of that dream away and that's why he keeps it in mind. He files it away, as it were. And what are we to conclude about Joseph from all of this? Was he boasting? Well, possibly. You know, he's been bullied just because his dad loves him so maybe he's responding to their bullying and their nastiness with a barb of his own. Better start buying some knee pads, boys because you're going to be doing a lot of bowing down in the future. Or maybe it was actually completely reasonable for him to want to share two remarkable dreams that in his context were often understood to be a divine message. And was that unreasonable for him to share that? Well, we've just got to guess. And so we come to the second part of the passage. And this is the dark result of the brother's hatred. Verse 12. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. And so he said to them, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. And then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. Now, you may have noticed in the outline that I've entitled this section vengeance at Shechem again because there is a backstory to this location that would explain Jacob Israel's concern at this point now we're going to talk more about this as well in the podcast tomorrow but Shechem was the location of the bloodshed that happened in chapter 34 in revenge for the rape of their sister the brothers led by Levi and Simeon, deceived the inhabitants and then got them to circumcise themselves and then when that was at its most painful, went in and murdered them, every single male in the village, plundered everything that belonged to them, stole their sheep, their cattle, everything, even stole their wives and children, presumably to make them their slaves. Those are the sons of Israel. Those are Joseph's brothers. They've already done this. Defenders of their sister's honour, 
sure, but they managed to choose an especially bloodthirsty, violent and excessively vengeful way of acting it out. And now we're told that they're tending to the flocks up near Shechem. There's no one in Shechem, they killed everyone. And I say up there because as, um, as we'll see, Shechem is about 100 kilometres north of Hebron. And so when Joseph's being sent, he's being sent on a 100 kilometre journey by himself. Shechem may have been neutralised, but I think Jacob is concerned, as he sort of says earlier, that the other Canaanites might take vengeance. And so he sends Joseph to check, literally to, and think about this, given what they weren't prepared to even say a word of, to Joseph, to see to the peace, to seek the shalom of your brothers. And they couldn't even speak it to him. Joseph is on a peace-seeking mission. But the setting reminds us, doesn't it, of what these brothers are capable of. And Joseph is sent up there alone. And we know that every single one of those bloodthirsty brothers hates his guts. Well, they see him before he sees them. And peace is not on their minds. Just seeing him wearing his jacket makes their blood boil and we get to see just how deeply rooted their hatred of Joseph was. Look at verse 18, they saw him in the distance and before he reached them they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other, come now let's kill him, throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Dad's a hundred kilometres away. And the countryside, it's, it's a dangerous place. Anything could happen. So we can kill him. We can cover it up with a lie. No one will know any better. And we'll be rid of this stench in our nostrils. But Reuben, Jacob's eldest son, tries to talk his brothers out of it. Now, why would Reuben do that? Well, not because he liked Joseph. They all hated him, including Reuben but perhaps because he knew that he was already in dad's bad books. And he did something that tends to do that, and that is he slept with one of Jacob's wives. That tends to kind of make dad a little bit annoyed at you, and dad knew about it. And also because he's the oldest, if something bad happens to Joseph, Jacob is already angry at Reuben, is probably going to come looking at him. So when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Verse 21, let's not take his life, he said. Do not shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Now, Reuben's motivated by trying to win his father back here. Well, it seems that he succeeds in his his scheme, and so, momentarily at least, in, in talking them down from the extreme. Look at verse 23. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing, and they took him and threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. I'm not sure if they tell us that to say that he wasn't going to drown or whether to say, gee, that would have hurt. Um, As they sat down to eat, and they sat down to eat their meal. So how cold is that? Think about that. This is your brother. They rip off his hated robe. They throw him down into this cistern. 
And you can bet that that process wasn't gentle because they remember they were, they wanted to kill him. This is their second best option. So they would not have been gentle at all. And having done the deed, what do they do? They sit down and grab out some food and start chugging it down. Job done. It's callous. We actually learn from chapter 42 that at this time, Joseph, they were listening to Joseph crying out to them from in the well. Joseph was traumatized, begging for his life all the way while they're just going, I'm eating. They just ignored him. And then brother number four, Judah, also comes up with a modified mercy plan. Seeing a caravan of Ishmaelites heading down to trade in Egypt, he, he suggests that they, you know, sell him into a life of slavery instead. Isn't that nice of him? What a guy. We may as well make some money out of this whole venture. And you get this pathetic expression of false morality in verse 27. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he's he's our brother. He's our own flesh and blood. So let's just sell him into slavery and that's okay. And his brothers agreed. And so poor old innocent Joseph, sent up there to seek their peace, is sold into the hands of slavers for 20 pieces of silver. Well, who knows what Reuben was doing at the time they were selling him, but he returns. Joseph's not there anymore and he starts to panic, but it's too little and it's too late. Well, so they come up with a plan because they've, they've got to cover this and so they come up with a plan to cover their dark deed and, and what they come up with actually proves to be deeply ironic in the story of Genesis because you see Jacob's own sins committed long before they were born return to visit him because he's deceived as he himself deceived Isaac to steal Esau's blessing. Did you notice the connection? He's duped by a dead goat, a tricked up stolen robe and then a lie. Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood and they took the ornate robe back to their father and said, oh, we found this. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. And he recognised it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. I mean, what? I mean, you're his dad, he's your beloved son and you think that he's been ripped apart by animals. I mean, this, this is just horrible. But it works. And Jacob is left, as you might expect, overwhelmed by grief. Meanwhile, Joseph is taken on the long journey to Egypt to begin his new life as a slave. So what does this what does this passage teach us? Well, before we look at what is most important, it can be helpful along the way to reflect a little bit on this as a as perhaps a kind of case study. Because it's pretty ugly, isn't it? And there are fewer things sadder than deep family dysfunction and hatred. And even though we know that we all sin, it can still regularly shock us when we read of those that are we just automatically assume that there's a good guy category and a bad guy category when we're reading the Bible and there's good guys like Isaac and, and Jacob and Re- Rebecca and Rachel and the 12 sons of Israel and then we just see them acting so poorly. But, but Genesis has prepared us for this, hasn't it? It's prepared us to not expect flawlessness. Sin even in the community of God's people, is a constant reminder 
of why God needs to redeem humanity in the first place. The very first event that Genesis records after the expulsion from the garden is Cain murdering Abel because of envy. In the next chapter, Genesis 5, we read of the vengeful excess of Lamech, who, like Simeon and Levi and the brothers, responded to an offence with disproportionate and over-the-top violence. Why should we think that that disappeared from the world? And we've seen case study after case study of the way Isaacs and Rebecca's and Jacob's so-called positive prejudices to members of their family over and above others have deeply divisive and negative consequences of those who were excluded because of their favouritism. But it's not just on those that actually are excluded by the favouritism. Jacob loved Joseph, but his favouritism brought Joseph great suffering. Like the grasping and lies of Jacob, the godlessness of Esau, Isaac living by his stomach and trying to overturn God's will, one by one we see that this world and the people in it are messed up, even the good guys. And the effect of that is corruptive. And not just of ourselves, but our relationships. That's the way sin works. But one thing that is particularly stark this week is how dark envy is. Thou shalt not covet. Well, it might be the 10th commandment, but it's not victimless. And it's no less important. Envy, jealousy. Bitterness can provoke great evil in the human heart if left to make space for it. It's a very short leap, isn't it? And we see this in this passage from such things to hatred, abuse and violence to a hard-hearted disregard for those that we're actually called to love. To the kind of feelings that mean that no matter what the person who you envy has actually done, you can't say anything good about them. Everything that you look at them through is this lens that's green. The eyes, the green eyes of envy, where you look at everything that they do and all you just see is what's wrong and what you loathe about them. Because you're harbouring envy and bitterness in your heart. So is there anyone who you even detect tends to provoke those kind of reactions in you. Be very watchful be, and be very honest with yourself if you detect this. Because what we need to do is we need to stop interpreting this as their problem. The problem lies in us. Envy and bitterness is our poison. And we need to purge it. As we read in Hebrews chapter 12, make every effort to live in peace with everyone and to be holy. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And see to it that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Do you notice that description of holiness and defilement? Bitterness, envy, jealousy is a defiling thing. And if you reflect upon what it feels like and what it does, you go, yeah, It defiles, doesn't it? 
Galatians chapter 5, the acts of the flesh. Remember, we've just spent a term looking at the fruit of the Spirit. But the acts of the flesh are obvious and included amongst those, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy. And what does Paul say? I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's not harmless, it's not victimless and it's not something that will destroy you, not destroy you if you just let it go. See, whenever we see the sins of others, like Joseph's brothers, displayed across the pages of Scripture, it should cause us, call us to two actions. First, to learn from their sin, to note what it is and go, ooh, mustn't do that, <laughs> don't repeat it. But second, to repent and to seek God's forgiveness when what we see is not so much their sin, but we recognise by the convicting word of the Spirit is a mirror showing us our own. But if that's the discordant, jarring sound of sin, what about that melody that I spoke about earlier? Behind that cacophony, could you hear the beginnings of a familiar tune? The tune's like this. The first note is a beloved son. But the tune seems to be set in a minor key, doesn't it? Because this beloved son is despised and he's rejected by those that should be loving him. And not for anything that he'd done wrong, but simply because of who he was and what he said. And as he revealed the promise that he would rule, the news that every knee would bow before him, he gets hated all the more. And he's sent to seek the peace of his own, but his own don't receive him. Instead, they seek his death. They beat him, strip him of his ornate robe. They hand him over to bondage for a few pieces of silver. The one who God had revealed would rule them instead ends up being a slave. It's a tune that's going to change and it's going to develop through the pages of Scripture, but it's a familiar one, isn't it? The one who God has said will rule instead becoming an innocent, suffering slave at the hands of his own brothers? Of course, this is just the beginning of the tune. The Joseph tune ends with God using that betrayal as the means by which he will save the people that betrayed him in the first place and will see a slave exalted to the highest place, the right-hand man of the king of Egypt. Spoiler alert. The Bible is a story from the beginning of God redeeming his people. And one of the most important themes in that story, that God would do so through his chosen suffering servant, it doesn't begin in Isaiah 53. It doesn't begin with the trials of King David that are exemplified in Psalms like Psalm 22. But the tune begins right here in Genesis with Joseph. So some of the notes that will compose that tune, we've heard a few of them earlier in Genesis, haven't we? Like in Genesis 3, when we hear about the child who, who of the woman who, though he'll be struck by the serpent, will crush the serpent's head. We heard that bit. And then, and then we get the death of the innocent, Abel, in chapter 4. And in Genesis 22, when, when God's promise is confirmed after the willingness of Abraham to sacrifice his son, his one and only son, we hear the elements of the melody. 
but it only really starts to become a fully-fledged tune of its own right here. The melody of one who is despised, rejected, unesteemed by men, but whose path of suffering will be the path of God's people's redemption. Of course, it's the tune that breaks through, doesn't it, in full volume in the life, death, resurrection and ascension. Don't forget that bit of Jesus Christ. The son of man who did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The tune is going to lead all the way to his betrayal, to his being handed over to the Romans, to being beaten, his royalty mocked, and ultimately, of course, his crucifixion. He will not be spared death, as Joseph was, but he will be liberated from the pit that they secured him in when he rises victorious from the grave. And that will be our salvation and our hope. As to a lesser degree, Joseph's vindication will become the salvation of his brothers. But I don't want to spoil too much thunder from future weeks. But you know the tune. And you've heard it before. And isn't it amazing how you see the gospel from the very beginning of the Bible? You can see it, Jesus is not plan B. God's been working up to him from the very beginning. But I want you, as you reflect upon the tune's beginnings, the wickedness of, of Joseph's brothers, I want you to think, doesn't it blow your mind that God would use their treatment of Joseph ultimately for their salvation? I mean, if the flaws of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob make us marvel at God's grace towards them, how much more God's grace to his horribly wicked brothers, the brothers of Joseph? But that's just a trajectory, isn't it? That helps us to grasp the reality of Jesus' death for us all. Can I say, if you've not yet turned from your sin and committed your life to Jesus, then you kind of need to picture yourself here as being like one of Joseph's brothers, as confronting as that analogy might sound. Because up until now, you've been content to send Jesus out of sight and out of mind and out of your heart, unwilling to bow down before him and offended at the very idea. But unlike them, you know what you now know. Even if you didn't know it before today, you've just heard it. You know who Jesus is, the risen King of Kings, and you have heard what he has done for you. He died to pay for your sins. So are you ready to change your tune? Are you willing to say, I've been wrong? I recognise who you truly are, Jesus, and your tune is much, much better and I want to start singing it. Thank you for what you've done. Well, if you go, well, yeah, that is where I'm at, I think. Then There's nothing stopping you. There really isn't. And why don't you just do it today and then let someone know that you've done it. Just tell God. Say to him, I'm sorry. Thank you for Jesus. Please change my tune. Please save me. And he will. But if you have, where do you fit into the story? Well, you're not 
not really as one of the brothers. You're actually with Joseph. Or more accurately, you're with Jesus. You've been graciously woven into his story, clothed with his innocence and called to live that innocence out in righteousness, called to follow the path that he has trodden in servanthood and sacrifice and even unjust persecution and called to be with him in glory for your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And so when Christ, who is your life, appears, isn't it wonderful that you will also appear with him in glory? Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for Jesus. You know, we, we reflect upon the wicked way that Joseph was treated and then we reflect upon the way that we have responded to you from all our lives. Uh, Father, thank you so much that you are gracious towards us and we thank you especially for our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Um, please help us to live our lives loving and honouring him for all that he has done. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.